Welcome to the Tibetan Blog of Living and Dying podcast, celebrating 20 years of the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. In this first part of a three-part teaching on living and dying today, Sogyal Rinpoche talks about understanding death from the Tibetan Buddhist perspective and how learning to live with an awareness of the immediacy of death can help us to appreciate what is most important about life. This teaching was given in Glasgow, Scotland in May 2004 on the occasion of His Holiness the Dalai Lama's visit. Tonight what I'm going to present you is a glimpse of the Buddhist wisdom of Tibet and its vision of life and death. I will try to give you a heart of what is contained in the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. So we live in a time of great change and turmoil. And all of us face uncertainty, suffering and fear, whether during our lives or as we come to die. We all need to find a way to understand and transform difficulties, crises, problems, and troubles with the deeper acceptance, insight, and compassion. And this is how we will discover the peace of mind, courage, stability, and the contentment that will give us the inner refuge or the inner peace, the equanimity that we need so much to meet the challenges of the world today. I remember His Holiness on a number of occasions pointed out that one great Tibetan master of mind training once remarked that one of the most wonderful quality of mind is that it can be transformed. And in fact, I think His Holiness spoke quite a bit about the way of happiness on a sensory level, but actually more on the deeper level, the happiness depends upon the mind. I remember on many occasions, I mean, he was asked by people saying, particularly by the press, when they say, how to be happy? What is the art of happiness? I often heard him say, well, granted that external situations and circumstances do to a certain extent contribute to one's happiness suffering, but fundamentally, happiness and suffering depends upon the mind, how the mind perceived through the five senses. Is that clear? And because we can train the mind, as he's only spoke, and so transform our fundamental attitudes. We can learn how to overcome difficulties and cope with even great problems, including sickness and crisis of life and suffering, grief connected with dying and death. And we can turn everything, even suffering, into a source of happiness and source of strength. It is interesting that the different Buddhist meditation practices, for example, mindfulness, and compassion have been studied recently in the universities in the United States. I think His Holiness mentioned a little bit refer to that. The tests on experienced practitioners show a remarkable range of results, such as a high level of activity in the parts of brain that help to form positive emotions, such as happiness, enthusiasm, joy, self-control. You see, what was interesting is that that part of the brain that formed positive emotions were not only lit up when they were practicing, even when they were not. 
You see, as Buddha said in the Dhammapada, which was one of the really basic Buddhist texts, in that he said, we are what we think, that all that we are rise with our thoughts, with the thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with pure mind and happiness will follow. We are what we think, all that we are rise with our thoughts, with the thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with evil mind and trouble will follow. Because you see, mind is like a crystal. Whatever you occupy, it becomes that. If you put a green cloth under the crystal, it becomes green. Yellow cloth, it becomes yellow. You understand? As Isonda said, it's the potential both good and bad, of constructive and destructive. At the moment, because of ignorance and negative emotions, we've been acting in a negative way, resulting in suffering and mental suffering of tremendous, how do you say, depth. But on the other hand, if we train our mind, just as also with the musicians, you know that they're called, they, when the musicians, they play a certain instrument, it seems to change their particular brain, isn't it? His Holiness has been very interested with this research. With, for a number of years, he's been meeting with a group of scientists. So in this research, with some of the more uh, experienced practitioners, in fact, five lamas, were actually examined, and the results have been astounding. Because what shows is that if you train your mind in the really positive way through this training of the mind, then the parts of brain that form positive emotions, such as happiness, enthusiasm, self-control, are always, as you say, on the rise. Not only when they're practicing, but also even when they're not. Is that clear? And unusual, also they found that they have an unusual empathy. Not apathy, empathy. And really in tune to emotion other people. And it also shows that meditation has shown to calm the parts of brain that trigger fear and anger. But first, as soon as I was supposed to speak about living and dying, I'll talk about a little bit about death and life. Would you like that or not? Okay. So, learn to die, and thou shall learn how to live. There shall none learn how to live that had not learned to die. These words written hundreds of years ago in the medieval book of craft of dying often come to my mind when I think about the understanding of death and its relationship to life. If we can only learn how to face death, then we would have learned the most important lesson of life, which is how to face ourselves so as to come to terms with ourselves in the deepest possible sense as human beings. You understand? I often tease people, if you're worried about dying, don't worry. I promise that you will all die successfully. <laughs> but then, why are we afraid? We are afraid of meeting ourselves. We are afraid of facing ourselves, coming to terms with ourselves. In fact, as you know, in this modern age, we do not look at life and death as a whole. As a result, we become very attached to this life. 
and reject, deny death, and death becomes the ultimate fear, the last thing that we want to look. So, why are we be afraid of death? As I said earlier, beneath the fear of death is fear of looking into and facing ourselves. Because the moment of death is the moment of truth. In fact, death is like a mirror in which the true meaning of life is reflected. Even in the Christian monastic traditions, there's a saying, memento mori, which means remember dying, or more to the point, remember you must die. Because if you remember dying, then we might understand what life is. For death is the foundation and the very core of spiritual life. In fact, there's also a wonderful saying by the Muhammad, when he was asked, how do you polish the heart? How do you get rid of the rust and debris from the heart? He replied, by remembrance of God and much thought of death. In fact, thinking of death is very close to thinking of God. The death brings home what God is. You understand? In modern life, people look at death as a kind of a loss and a defeat. But however, from a spiritual point of view, death is not a tragedy to be feared, but an opportunity for transformation. For death is our greatest teacher. It wakes us up so that we don't become slothful, lazy, and naive. In fact, it said the death of the Buddha was his final teaching. The trouble with us is that even though we know that we will die one day, but because we do not know how or when, so we think we have an unlimited lease on life. And so we procrastinate. And laziness has actually many different forms. In the modern world, the one that is most practiced is what we may call it active laziness, which is that you keep ourselves so busy that we don't have time to think about or take care of the most important things. So we fool ourselves. Death, on the other hand, tells us it's time to stop kidding ourselves. Coming to terms with death then is actually coming to terms with life. Yet all too often it seems that we only start to think about death just before we die. But isn't that a bit too late? Whereas the teachings show us that we should prepare for death now when we are well and in a happy frame of mind, particularly in those moments when we are naturally inspired into introspection. This is where we begin to see the life and death in a more inspired and profound way. As we reflect on death, we come to realize that we could die at any moment, so we have to be ready. After all, dying is actually very simple. If you breathe out, and you can't breathe, that's it. It's very, how do you say? It's very simple, very immediate. Death, in fact, lives in every moment. So the living with images of death and coming face and face with death help us to purify and simplify our lives and sort out our priorities. Or rather, put it this way, really, Thinking and living with images of death helps one to become more ethical. Because when we think that we just live forever, then you see, how do you say? Uh, it was, there was a saying by this great Zen master, Suzuki Roshi, just before he passed away. 
I think some students lamented that he's passing away and then said that, you know, whereupon he consoled them and said that, you know, we should be grateful, he said, that we have a limited life. He said, if you and I were to live forever, it'd really be a problem. The trouble with us, we think that we will, we will go on living, even though one day we will die. And so as a result, we just get lost in the triviality of life. Do you understand? It, that's the it's not thinking about death, it's not being like morbid, saying I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. No, that's not productive at all. But rather seeing that we could die at any moment. In fact, in the teaching, it is said, whether tomorrow, next life, which comes first, we do not know. As Yisrael Dalam was talking about analytical meditation. In many of the analytical meditation, when you really look deeply, because when you say analyze, you look deeply, because often we don't look deeply, we just simply take things for granted and assume that everything is permanent. In actual fact, it's not. And when you begin to really look that everything is impermanent and changing, then we, we realize that you see that actually death could get, happen any moment. And so therefore, we have to sort out our priorities. We have to take care of the most important things in life. Because otherwise, when the moment comes, it'll be too late. You understand? It is said in the teachings that the great practitioner meet death with joy. Mediocre practitioner meet death without apprehension. And, but an ordinary practitioner meet death without regret. At least if you can face death without regret, we have, in some ways, succeeded. So living with the immediacy of death, or coming to face and face with death, help us to purify and simplify our life and sort up our it's The thing is that when you reflect on that, in, in the Buddhist meditation practices, one of the first things is reflection on death and impermanence. Because when you do that, really, it helps you to, how do you say, see the preciousness of life. You understand? And make you realize that this life is precious. It should not be wasted. It is impermanent. Therefore, there's a sense of urgency. We must put to good use. So therefore, living with the medias of death or coming to face with death help us to purify and simplify our lives and sort out our priorities. As we reflect on life, and we come to realize that everything in life, in this life, is impermanent. Usually we plan our lives, organize and arrange everything, and keep things as safe and secure as possible, but yet our security gets blown away when impermanence takes place, when something unexpected, you see, in a very unexpected way. Then we have no idea of how to cope because we have not planned for it. So if we really wish to have a secure plan for life, we need to prepare on a deeper level to find that inner refuge. And when you have that inner refuge, even though everything around us falls apart, there is something inside you that never gives up on you, never lets you down. That is what the teachings provide. In fact, often in the reflection on like in analytical meditation, Often, you see, even myself, I always ask, you see, why is everything impermanent, you see? Why is everything impermanent? If you keep asking that question, really the answer comes back is, reason why everything is impermanent is because it's like that. 
It's like that. Because life is impermanent. The discontinuity is the part of the fundamental continuity. For example, when you have a watch, if it doesn't tick or move or change, then it's not working, it's dead. If your heart is not beating, constantly changing, then you're dead. In fact, it is the change that keeps life alive. Provide us the opportunity to change. You understand? Most of all, what impermanence teaches us is to let go of grasping and yearning and attachment, which only brings pain and suffering. For the reason we become so fiercely attached to things, like from our emotions to ideas to opinions to our possession to other people, is because we have not taken impermanence to heart. Once we can accept impermanence is the very nature of life, and that everyone suffers, including ourselves, at the hands of change and death, then letting go becomes the only natural thing to do. In fact, the only thing that works. Then our attachment to our grief is loosened, and our impermanence becomes a consolation, bring us peace, confidence, and fearlessness. Like, for example, uh, there's a story during the time of Buddha. A woman who had lost her only child and she was grief-stricken. And she really wanted to bring the child alive, so she went everywhere asking for help. Some just consoled her, others just laughed at her. Finally, somebody said, well, if any man can help you, probably it will be the Buddha. So when he went with the Buddha, Buddha said, okay, I can bring her back to life. If you can bring a handful, of, a bowl full of mustard seed, from a house that never experienced death. She thought she was very elated. Oh, well, that's, that's a hope. So she went round the cities asking for a bowl full of mustard seed from a home that had not experienced death. When, as we visited, she experienced that everywhere she went, there's somebody in that house that died. And as she went around looking for then her own kind of grief loosened because she realized that the death is not a conspiracy. It's something that everybody suffers from. You understand? You understand me? So, so that you see the most important of all, what we see reflecting or living two things very essentially. Living with the immediacy of death, you see, help us to realize, it keeps us on toe. Keeps us on toe keeps us in check understand? and help us to really sort out the priorities, what are the most important things in life. It's interesting, people who have gone through near-death experience, they have a complete, it really completely changes their life also, their life values, how they look at afterwards. And then, that's by living with immediacy of death, helps to, in a sense, live life or really appreciate life come to realize, you know, it really actually helps you to face life, not just that. Whereas when you begin to understand that everything is impermanent, that everything changes, then you realize that, you see, since everything is impermanent, then you realize it's futile to grasp. 
because grasping is the root of all our problem. As His Holiness was saying about, you see this, what the scientists who were talking on destructive emotions, they were saying, for example, people who always speak of I, I, me, 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 have more tendency of, of heart attack. Because grasping on the self, grasping on the self. So that when you begin to realize, actually, you see, to this reflection, as he's only said about the, the analytical meditation. This is analytical meditation. You go and realize how everything is impermanent. Then you begin to realize it's futile to grasp because you would not put your money into a bank that's going bankrupt anyway. When you know it's going bankrupt, you would not put it. You understand? Like that. You begin to realize, you see? Then you realize the futility of grasping. That's really the, the lesson that we learn. So though we know that everything is by nature impermanent, somehow we can't accept it. Instead, we try to cheat that natural process, which is impossible, because it goes against the very laws of nature. As a result, we get hurt. So all we have to do is to accept impermanence once for all. Extraordinary thing is when you do accept that impermanence, you realize that you're not losing anything at all, in fact, you're gaining everything. It is as if you're losing the clouds, but you're gaining the sky. It is at this point I'd like to share uh, two short passages from the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, where it explains. One is about the spirit of the warrior. Not the warrior, but the warrior. <laughs> Although we have been made to believe that if we let go, we will end up with nothing. But the life itself reveals again and again the opposite, that letting go is the path to real freedom. Just as when the waves lash at the shore, the rocks suffer no damage, but are sculptured and eroded into beautiful shapes. So our characters can be molded, our rough edges worn smooth by changes. Through weathering changes, we can learn how to develop a gentle but unshakable composure. Our confidence in ourselves grows, becomes much more greater, that goodness and compassion begin naturally to radiate from us and bring joy to others. I mean, one great example is His Holiness. In fact, when you talk about Bodhisattva, he's actually a warrior. He's got tremendous courage, compassion and a tremendous heart, tremendous courage. And this goodness is what survives death, a fundamental goodness that is in every one of us. The whole of a life is a teaching how to uncover the strong goodness and a training towards realizing and strengthening it. Now, another passage is that, which goes deeper. Impermanence has already revealed to us many truths, but it has a final treasure still in its keeping, one that lies largely hidden from us, unsuspected and unrecognized, yet most intimately our own. The poet Ricker has said that our deepest fears are like the dragons guarding our deepest treasures. 
The fear that impermanence waken in us, that nothing is real, that nothing lasts, is we come to discover our greatest friend because it drives us to ask, if everything dies and changes, then what is really true? Is there something behind appearance, something boundless and infinitely spacious, something in which the dance of change and impermanence takes place? Is there something, in fact, we can depend on that does survive what we call death? Allowing these questions to occupy us urgently and reflect on them, we slowly find ourselves making a profound shift in the way we view everything. With the continual contemplation and practice and letting go, we come to uncover in ourselves something, by the way, in quotes, something in quotes, not something, something, <laughs> that we cannot name or describe or conceptualize, something that we begin to realize lies behind the changes of death, the narrow desire and distraction to which our obsessive grasping onto permanence has condemned us begin to dissolve and fall away. As this happens, we catch a repeated and a glowing glimpses of the vast implication behind the truth of impermanence. It is as if all our lives we've been flying in an airplane through the dark clouds and turbulence when suddenly the plane soars above these into the clear boundless sky. Inspired and exhilarated by the emergence into a new dimension freedom, we come to uncover a depth of peace, a joy and confidence in ourselves that fills us with wonder and breathes in us a gradually a certainty that there is something that nothing destroys, that nothing alters, that cannot die. As the great Tibetan saint, yogin poet called Milarepa, who inspired millions of people, you can see he's one of his only Dalai Lama's heroes. He said, in horror of death, I took to the mountains and again and again meditated on the uncertainty of hour of death. But then he said, capturing the fortress of the deathless, unending nature of mind, now all fear of death is done and over with. Gradually then, we come to be aware in ourselves of the calm and skylark presence of what Milarepa calls the deathless, unending natural mind. As this new awareness begins to become vivid and almost unbroken, there occurs what the Upanishads call a turning about in the seat of consciousness, a personal, utterly non-conceptual revelation of what we are, why we are here, how we should act, which mount in the end to nothing less than a new life, new birth, almost, you could say, a resurrection. What a beautiful and what a healing mystery it is that from contemplating continually and fearless the truth of change and impermanence, we come slowly to find ourselves face to face in gratitude and joy with the truth of changeless, with the truth of deathless, the unending nature of mind. Is that correct? We hope you have enjoyed this podcast of the Tibetan blog of Living and Dying. Parts two and three of this teaching on living and dying today can be found on our blog. For more teachings, articles and discussions about the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, visit the Tibetan Blog of Living and Dying at www.living-and-dying.org.
org.